everybody, and again, happy, uh, happy uh, coming up Hanukkah. I, uh, and I just want to say, you don't realize uh, the trust that is put into you. In every uh, boy's yeshiva, the administration is absolutely adamant that nobody is allowed to light in their rooms. They have to light in the dining room. If they catch you lighting in the room, they will expel you immediately because boys cannot be trusted with matches. So the fact that you actually have the zechut of lighting in your room uh, just shows your greater maturity and uh, the fact that uh, you can be trusted around matches and fire and, and everything else. Because in my yeshiva, it's absolutely there's there's a sign every two feet that says, "Don't you dare, you know, light light in your in your room." Even though halakhically, the truth of the matter is, that's where we should be lighting. That's, uh, that's much better, either outside or, or in, in your room. Okay. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah so, uh, be it as it may, uh, we began last week uh, discussing a, a medical ethics issue, and the particular issue we began with was suicide. And uh, the halakhic conclusion isn't so controversial. Shouldn't do it. I mean, that's basically uh, what we say. So, don't commit suicide. You know, stay alive. Uh, but we did uh, discuss some of the uh, halakhic basis for it. And the fact that even though the letter of the law says, if God forbid somebody takes their life, we don't mourn for them, we don't sit shiva for them, uh, they don't have a share in the world to come, and uh, they're not buried in the regular part of a Jewish cemetery, that's the letter of the law. But in practice, uh, it is said the following, that if a person, God forbid, took his life out of severe depression and fear, they are not considered responsible for their actions. And as a result, everything is reversed. We do sit shiva for them. They get the chair in the world to come. So now this is not the same as legitimating. We're not saying it's permitted to do it. But we are saying that a person at a certain level may not be fully responsible for the decisions that they make. And halacha recognizes that sometimes there's a sin that's committed uh, out of just callous indifference, which is very, very severe. And then there's a sin that's committed because of un unbearable pain. That's a very different thing. Yeah, they're both sins, theoretically. But in one case, Hashem has much more rachamim than in the other case. So the bottom line, I had mentioned to you that when I was a rabbi in Silver Spring, Maryland for, uh, you know, for, many, for a number of years, uh, um, you know, 20, 23 years, so unfortunately, there was no member of my synagogue who took his life, but there were family, there were family members of people who were members of my show who unfortunately uh, took their own lives. And in all of those cases, we observed the regular morning Kaddish, and we did not apply the laws of the Shulchan Aruch based on the idea that, once again, we, we make an assumption that people who take their life are normally doing so not because they're calm, but simply because they are facing either unbearable pain or unbearable fear of future pain. Yeah? What about um, the people who took their lives like at Masada or New York? Okay, so I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk about that today. In other words, I want to talk about uh, two examples in the Bible, in the Tanakh, where there was apparent suicide. And then we'll talk about later cases. Masada is an outstanding example. Where in York, York, England is another example of suicides, and that, that's not the only one. And we'll talk about exactly, that's what we're going to talk about now. Uh, are those halakhic examples of something that's okay, or do we simply say, you know, they did it, doesn't mean it's right? Yeah. If someone, um, a Jewish person, had an assisted suicide, 
would that be considered, like, they're still not mentally stable and they're making that decision, but they're still making a decision. Yes. So it's like, what category would they kind of fall under in that sense? Well, well, that's the point we're making. We're not, we're not saying you have to be, you know, you have to be psychotic. We're, we're basically saying that any person who made this drastic decision because of extreme suffering is not considered to be a full, sound mind and body. So as a result, uh, virtually every case of an assisted suicide will be somebody that, has, that is extremely suffering. About it more than someone, like, as in, it's more like you're discussing it with someone else and then going through those things. I, I understand, meaning it's not a spur of the moment decision. Yeah, I, I understand, but, but even so, you'd have, to, you'd, have, you'd have to examine the situation. I think in cases of doubt, we would err on the side of, of being more lenient, yeah. but there might be a case where somebody literally just is premeditated, is calm, and simply decides to take their life for whatever reason. Um, in fact, an interesting case would be the people who take their life. You know, there are people who take their lives not because of physical sicknesses. They take their lives because maybe there's a scandal that was uncovered, uh, maybe corruption. Uh, there are judges or politicians who sometimes take their lives because uh, some story is going to come out. But even that, you know, uh, we recognize psychological stress can be overwhelming. It's not just physical pain. And under those circumstances, uh, one could say that they're not fully responsible. Now, interestingly, just to give you a little horror, a little observation, uh, in the Holocaust, where Jews were in concentration camps, mm -hmm. very, very few Jews committed suicide, even though they would sometimes pray to God that they would not wake up the next morning. They, they prayed that God would take their lives, but they almost never took their own lives. It's quite amazing. Among religious Jews, it was basically zero. Nobody committed suicide, even among non-religious Jews. Uh, nobody committed suicide, or very, very few. The one now Nazis were committing suicide all the time. <laughs> I mean, Hitler, number one, you know, killed himself right before he was going to be caught, and all the top Nazis committed suicide. Uh, uh, Goebbels committed suicide. Goering, Goering was actually caught. Goebbels committed suicide uh, before he was caught. Uh, there was one famous Jewish suicide. I'll just mention this: uh, the the Jewish uh, head of the Warsaw Ghetto was Adam something, Chernowitz or something. He's one of those Polish names it's hard to pronounce. He was not a religious Jew. He was totally a uh, secular Jew. Uh, he committed suicide because the Nazis demanded that he make up lists of which Jews should be deported and which Jews should not be deported. That was sometimes a duty on ghetto officials. And this was such an overwhelming, and it is such an overwhelming, tragic decision for him to make, who would live and who would die, he took his life. Now, you can look at that and say, you know, he had a good heart, he had a Jewish heart. The, doing something like this overwhelmed him. But you should know that the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto considered him a traitor. They considered it a betrayal. They said, you took the easy way out by simply getting out of her, and you left all of us to our fate. So it's interesting that they did not look kindly at his suicide. They saw it as an escape and an evasion of the responsibilities of leadership that he had at that moment of crisis. Okay, so now let's talk about the suicides that are first in the Bible, and then we'll branch out. Suicide number one is that of the judge Shimshon, right? Samson, Shimshon. Shimshon is our version of Superman. Uh, super strength, Hashem gave him strength. Uh, he was born, and he was told before he was born, his mother was told, he would have to be raised as a Nazir, 
A nazir mean he would not be allowed to drink wine, his hair could not be cut, etc. This was like a holy status. A person can make himself a nazir, but Shimshon was a nazir from birth by divine command. And the character of Shimshon, I'm not sure if you're studying it in any of your uh, Tanakh classes. It's in the book of Shoftim, the book of Judges. But the character of Shimshon is quite, quite difficult. On one hand, he is a judge appointed by God. He's considered to be holy. On the other hand, there's a lot of stuff Shimshon does that's hard for us to understand. He's cavorting with Philistine women, etc. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't have the image of the rabbi with the long white beard who's sitting over learning Torah all day. He seems to be involved in many, many different things. But that's part of his nisterness, part of his hiddenness was that indeed, externally, he was involved in things that are tame and the like. And if you remember the story of Shimshon, his strength existed only as long as he let his hair grow long and he didn't violate the Naziris. And he took up with a uh, woman of bad influence, Delilah. And Delilah gave him a haircut. And as a result, he no longer had his strength. He was taken by the Philistines. And they pierced his eyes. And they chained him and they mocked him. And then in the middle of a party of all of the Philistine generals, he asked Hashem, let me have my strength one more time so I may die together with the Philistines. Meaning I'll die, but I'll take them with me. And what happened was, Hashem gave him the strength and he tore down the pillars of the building. And the whole building collapsed and killed hundreds, if not thousands, of the Philistines, and Shimshon died as well. So Shimshon committed suicide by basically asking Hashem to let him tear down the building. So the question is, do we understand this as something permitted? Now, I think we would have to say it's permitted because here God himself agreed, meaning it's not like Shimshon took a knife and stuck himself. The only reason Shimshon died is because Hashem gave him the koach to tear down the building. So we have to assume that the definition of the story must mean that there was divine imprimatur uh, for what Shimshon did. But Shimshon did a lot of things which we wouldn't consider permitted for us. Like what? Shimshon? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I understand that, but that, those, were, those were without miracles, meaning to say... I mean, his strength was a miracle. No, his strength was a miracle, that's true, but once he had it, he had it. But here the idea was he had lost his strength. And Hashem gave it back to him for that one specific thing. So that would seem to be more logical that Hashem must have agreed. So let, let's analyze Shimshon this way. And let's think if there's an analogy. In it. There are plenty of positions in the world where people risk their lives all the time. I mean, if you're not allowed to commit suicide, then let's ask this question. Why are you allowed to be a policeman? Why are you allowed to be a fireman? Why are you allowed to be a first responder? Why are you allowed to be a soldier? Every time you do your job, then God forbid, you're taking, a person is taking their life in their hands. The person may die. So what, what, what does halacha assume with that? Since halacha permits people, maybe even encourages them to be policemen, firemen. So it must be that you are allowed to risk your life in order to protect other people from dying. In other words, that's clear. In other words, it's clear, is it not, that if I risk my life, if I risk my life to potentially save other people or protect other people, 
even if it's not mandatory. So Hashem doesn't command you to become a policeman. But nevertheless, it's permitted. So here's the question. If I can risk my life to save people, can I take my life to save people? Now, let's take the following. Let me give you a modern example. Let's say, and we, unfortunately in Israel we have cases like this. Let's say some terrorist throws a grenade into a classroom of children. So the teacher or the soldier, whoever it is, falls on the grenade. So they get blown up, but that cushions the explosion so other people don't get hurt. Now this is different than just being a policeman. If I'm a policeman, I'm risking my life to save people. But this is very different. Jumping on a grenade is not risking my life to save people. It is a virtual 100%. It's taking my life. It's as if I'm killing myself. So that's an extension, meaning you can't extrapolate, meaning the fact that I'm allowed to risk doesn't automatically mean that I'm allowed to take. Did you see the difference? In other words, one is a risk, right? When a policeman goes into a dangerous situation, there's a chance he'll die, but there's also a chance he won't. When you jump on a grenade, you are essentially killing yourself to save other people. So that's a question, but still, some postkim have said that you are allowed to even give your life to save others. To give you a Holocaust analogy, uh, the Nazis were looking at one point for the Gera Rebbe, who was a great, great Hasidic Rebbe in Poland. And they finally found the house where the Rebbe was staying. And they burst into the house and they demanded, where is the Gera Rebbe, or whatever they called him. So a man who was not the Rebbe came forward and said, I am the Gera Rebbe knowing that the Nazis would shoot him right away, but they would stop looking because they thought that. So he essentially, what he gave his life so the Rebbe would not die. Again, is that permitted? Can you give, can you give your life? Now it's one thing, in the case of the grenade, is there a numbers game here? There, the teacher who jumped on the grenade gave their life to save many people. In the case of the Rebbe, he gave his life to save one person. Do numbers make a difference? Some say, well, numbers don't make a difference. Every human being is infinite. So uh, infinity times 100, times a million, times 10, 10 billion is still infinity. If I could give my life to save a million people, I can give my life to save one person. On the other hand, why is their life better than my life? You know, who says? Well, can you make that calculus? Bottom line basically is, that number one. In other words, there's one thing that's clear and one thing that's unclear. What's clear is you are allowed to put yourself in danger in order to save other people. That's why you could be a policeman, a soldier, a fireman, and the like. That's clear. What's a little less clear is can you do something that 100% will kill you to save other people, such as jumping on a grenade? Some say yes. Now, if you say yes, that would be the key to the Shimshon episode. Shimshon knew that he would die by pulling down the, the columns of the palace. 
So he was committing suicide. But he was committing suicide in the course of eliminating the enemies of Israel, who themselves would be killing many, many Jews. So in a sense, Shimshon's suicide could be understood as a military mission to prevent enemies of Jews from destroying Jews. Uh, the difference is, of course, a soldier is taking the risk of death. Shimshon did certain death. But again, we could analogize Shimshon to the person who jumps on the grenade to save other people. Right? That's one way we could, we could understand it. Yeah. With the first responders and that kind of thing, yeah. does that also apply to the same kind of principle as being able to donate an organ? Where yes, not- yes, I'll get to that, but that's 100% correct. That, that's exactly the same issue mm-hmm. of why I am permitted to donate a kidney. Very good okay. uh, that you drew the... Compa- huh? More than a kidney, no? Like what? Um, liver. Yes, or- yes. Uh, in other words, the number of things a person can donate when he's alive, you can donate a kidney because you have two. Oh, you can donate. Oh, that's that's a different issue. That's that's the question. But the, I'll, I'll get to that. No, I'm talking about when you're not brain dead. You're conscious. No, brain dead is a different issue. I'll get to that. That's uh, when are you dead? But I'm talking about when you're very much alive. You're breathing. You're talking. Right. So you can give a few things. You can't give your heart when you're alive. Yeah. Then you're not going to be alive. But uh, you can give a few things. You can give a kidney because you have two. You can actually give some of your liver because the liver can regenerate with as little as 20%. So you can be a live, partial liver donor. You can even be a partial lung donor. And of course, skin, obviously, uh, can, you can always, always donate. Bone, and bone, yeah. Marrow, yeah. Yeah. bone marrow and blood. Yeah, uh, but, uh, but with liver and kidney, at least, yeah. there is potentially a danger to you. And uh, the hatcher of doing it is that you're allowed to endanger yourself to be able to save the life of other people. Uh, bone marrow, there's no danger at all. So just, bone marrow, you might, really you might be, it hurts a lot. You might be obligated, halakhically, if you are a compatible donor, you might be halakhically obligated to save a life. You're not halakhically obligated to give up a kidney. Mm-hmm. Again, you have to, you know, you have to research it very carefully. Baruch Hashem, uh, you know, most kidney donors do fine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're worried, if you're scared about the long-term repercussions, halakha does not force you to donate a kidney. But bone marrow is a very different story. Bone marrow does, does regenerate in the normal course. Mm-hmm. So you might be obligated to give bone marrow. Yeah. What about choosing to die to save like your one child's life? Yeah, so that would be the, that would be a similar the similar idea here uh, of, of what we're talking about with Shimshon, meaning can mm-hmm. I give up my life to save a child? But your child specifically, I feel like that's much more clear. I think most people would do well, that, right? Uh, I think emotionally, I think uh, it's clear. I think uh, mo- most uh, parents might, might in fact feel that way. But halakhically, it's not necessarily any different than anyone else, meaning we have to focus on the point, can you take your life to save another person? And uh, the other person could be your child, it could be the Rebbe, it could okay. be a stranger, it could be anybody. We have to analyze it in terms of those categories. Okay. Uh, we don't necessarily allow the emotion to make, make, the, make the decision. Okay, alrighty. So that's how we understand Shimshon. Okay, that Shimshon we would understand as similar to the guy who jumps on the grenade to save other people. Shimshon destroying the Philistines was uh, effectively saving the Jewish people from an enemy at war. Now, this raises another question. I don't want to necessarily talk about it so much, but I'll just allude to it. 
I mean, keep in mind that this party, this was a party, right? This was a celebration. There weren't only enemy soldiers. There were wives and children. There were what you might call non-combatants. So you might ask the question, forget about Shimshin's suicide. What is his hetair to like kill everybody there? Isn't that uh, killing you know, civilians who are not fighting, etc.? In military jargon, that's called collateral damage. Uh, right? You're not allowed to... So, but the, the short answer is that under the halachos of war, there is a halachic law of war, just as there is a secular law of war, uh, if the only way to eliminate the enemy is even by killing their family, so halachically that is permissible. In other words, you do what you, what's necessary. I mean, you don't seek out the family. You don't go out and kill the family. But if the way to get the enemies is by destroying everybody, including their family, and that is the only way you'll really be able to get them, halacha does recognize that that type of collateral damage is permitted, which would be similar, lahavdil, under the secular law of war as well. Uh, if that's how you, you know, you try to avoid collateral damage. But in fact, I want to say the state of Israel, our army, the IDF, goes to extraordinary lengths not to uh, hurt non-combatants, although the truth is with Palestinians, <laughs> there's almost no one that is a non-combatant. I mean, even little kids are fighting. But, for example, the United States, when it wants to go after insurgents, it bombs from the air. Now, when you do aerial bombing, you know, you're going to get women, children, and the like. The soldiers of Israel, when they're looking for terrorists, they go house to house to house to house. They do not do aerial bombing. Now, do you realize how dangerous that is? You know, you're an Israeli soldier. You're looking for terrorists, house to house. house. No, you open the door, you might be met, you know, immediately. Couldn't it be argued that's not halakhic because, like, you're risking your life more? As a matter of fact, uh, there is such an argument. The argument is, I mean, it comes from a good place. In a way, we're very proud of the fact that our soldiers and our army are so compassionate and concerned for life. But in fact, what happens is the soldiers put themselves, or are put, in a very, very high level of danger, which no other army in the world follows. The United States does not follow that policy. The United States does aerial bombing all the time. I mean, listen, the United States had an atom bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to stop World War II. I mean, uh, what, did, what, what did that do, right? I mean, uh, you know, they used that. In fact, to this day, the United States is the only country in the world you know, we were talking about North Korea, we were talking about Iran. U.S. is the only country in the world that actually used uh, nuclear weapon. No, no other Why country. Why did it stay that way? Huh? Why did it stay amen, that way? Amen, amen, can you hear us out? But I'm saying that, uh, you know, we're, t- uh, we're I say we, because I'm still, I still have American connections, mm-hmm. but uh, we are the ones that are the, the tough guys. But okay, alrighty. So that's the Shimshon suicide. Now let's go to the... Does everyone agree with that? Uh... Yeah, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of another interpretation of it. Uh, yeah. Well, well, okay. I'm going to go back. I'm going to give you another shot of Shimshon. When I, when I go through Shaul, I'll go back and give you another shot of Shimshon. Wait, so you, just, like you said how it, it was okay for him to. Our assumption is it must have been okay. See, my assumption is it must have been okay because otherwise Hashem wouldn't have given him back his strength. It's as if Hashem approved what he was doing, right? Otherwise, why would he give him back his strength? Now, the next suicide that's recorded in the Torah... Yeah. Sorry. Um, then, I know Shimshon was obviously different than we are, but, like, yeah. if some... 
you might have talked about this before I wasn't here, but yeah. if someone does die by suicide, um, is that, like, was that meant to happen kind of thing? Uh, that might be a whole other, like, lecture. Well, that's a, that, that's a very, very, very tricky issue. Uh, you know, on one hand, uh, we, we, we Jews believe in what's called Tashkacha Pratis, which means divine intervention, that everything that happens is what God is directing in the world. On the other hand, we have another principle called Bechira, which is free will. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a famous rabbinic saying, everything is in the hands of heaven except the decision to fear God. Mm-hmm. Meaning, Hashem does not make me serve him or not serve him. That's up to me. And Hashem, as it were, however you understand it, ties his hands to enable human beings to make their own decisions. Maimonides argues that free will is a logical corollary of reward and punishment because if God predetermined if I would be righteous, then why do I deserve any reward if I'm righteous? And if God predetermined that I'm going to sin, then why should I be punished for my sin? It's not my fault. God made me do it. So the Rambam says it's inherent in the notion of responsibility and accountability that human beings make decisions independent of anything Hashem is forcing them to do. In fact, the Rambam even argues that tshuva would be impossible without free will. Tshuva, repentance. <laughs> how, can, how do I change myself for the better if whatever I do is decreed by God? Now that would mean, therefore, it's very, very tricky that when a person does an Avera like suicide, we don't say that God made it happen. We say it was the person's free will. Now, if he is suffering, if he's under great pain, then that free will was not free, so to speak. It was induced by an external circumstance. But nevertheless, we don't say that God made him do it, right? Uh, Because that would contradict, I think, the principle of free will. Now, this gets enormously complicated. I'm going to send you to your Hasidic uh, teachers uh, because Hasidus actually teaches, at least some levels of Hasidus, that there are two contradictory principles going on at the same time. On one hand, the human being has free will. On the other hand, every result is somehow determined by God at the same time. And the question is, how do you reconcile that fundamental contradiction? That's a very, very deep and and complicated question that that has roots in Kabbalah and, and the like. But from a simple, maybe simplistic approach, we would say the simple idea is that God did not make a person kill or commit suicide because that is in the realm of human uh, free will called Bechira. Okay, so if you look in the uh, laws of repentance in the Rambam, uh, you, will, you will see a discussion. In fact, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, the Rambam discusses many interesting questions. If Hashem knows the future, then how do you have free will? Hashem knew a million years ago, before there was a universe, what you're going to do today. So by the time you wake up, what type of choice do you have? He already knows, right? That, that question. And also the question of Hashem hardened Paro's heart, which means even if Paro wanted to send out the Jews, he couldn't. Right? So the Rambam you know, discusses all of those, uh, all of those questions in, in the laws of repentance. Okay? Alrighty. Uh, but as they say, the, 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 the coordination between Bechira and Hashkacha Pratis is one of the deepest, most profound questions of. Jewish philosophy of Hasidus and of Kabbalah. So all three areas 
are very much uh, involved in that uh, very difficult question. Okay, already. Uh, so now let's go to Shaul HaMelech. And this, maybe you've learned this book. You know, we have the book of Shemuel, right? The book of Shemuel. Now, the book of Shemuel is divided into two books, Shemuel Aleph, Shemuel Beis. But uh, you understand, I hope, that that is not a Jewish division. That is actually from the Christians. Uh, as far as we're concerned, there's only one book of Shemuel, just like there's only one book of Kings and one book of Chronicles. The division was, for some reason, done by the, by the Christians. But at the end of the first book of Shemuel, it talks about the last days of Shaul. And if you remember, Shaul, very complex character. Shaul was a great man. He was a prophet also. He was chosen by God to be the first king. But Shaul was seized by fits of melancholy and fits of jealousy and despondency. And you know, you could really write books and books and books exactly what was afflicting Shaul. Was it a mental illness? Or was it an estrangement from Hashem and a rejection from Hashem, a spiritual ailment? But whatever it is, at some point, before he fought the Philistines, he went to a witch, he went to a sorceress to bring up the dead soul of Shmuel the prophet. Aren't you not supposed to do that? You're not, absolutely not allowed to do that. Okay. This was absolutely an Avera. And he brought up Shmuel. He brought it up, he, or she brought, you know, the, the witch brought up Shmuel. And Shmuel told Shaul, you should not have done this. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. They will fall in war, because this is the day before the war. And indeed what happened was, Shaul was smitten by the Philistines. And as he was dying, and he was suffering, he asked his arms bearer, you know, the kings used to have people who would carry their swords, kill me, take me out of my agony. And the arms bearer said, how dare I set forth my hand to the anointed one of Hashem? So the Pasuk says, Shaul took his own sword and he fell upon it. So if I simply read the story at the end of Shmuel Aleph, Shaul took his life. That's what it says. Now, it's very complicated because at the very next chapter, which is in the beginning of Shmuel Beis, we have a whole different version of the story. It mentions, right, David is now going to become king. Right, King David is going to become king. So there was a strange person, a Ger Amaleki, an Amalekite convert. How do you get an Amalekite convert? Amongst us, we kill. Okay, we'll get to that too. Who comes to David and says, I have good news for you. I saw Shaul. Remember, Shaul was pursuing David all the time. I saw Shaul languishing in the field of war. And I took my sword and I killed him. The Geramaleki thought he would get credit for killing David's enemy. And David said to him, How dare you set your hand to the Mashiach of Hashem, the only and Shaul and David killed the Amaleki. So it's very, very confusing here because the end of Shmuel Aleph tells us Shaul committed suicide. The beginning of Shmuel Beis says there was a Ger Amaleki who took credit for that. Now maybe he just took credit and didn't do it. But then you have a problem. So that means David killed a person who didn't do anything wrong. 
On the other end, maybe he killed him because he was an Amalekite. <laughs> there could be other, other reasons for that. Right? So there's a lot of confusion as to the story. But I want to focus on the version of the story in Shmuel Aleph that Shaul took his life. And the question is, how do we understand the suicide of Shaul? So there are a few different ways of understanding it. Number one, the simplest way is, it was a sin. Shaul had a number of sins. This was a sin. Who who says we have to justify it in any way? Uh, It was a sin. We could also add that he was suffering very much. And as a result, even if it was a sin, like we said, he would not be fully responsible for his actions. And that's why he was given burial honors and the like. But normatively, it does not establish any type of halachic principle. But there's a second approach of of looking at this, and this is going to tie into the York situation. Not Masada. Masada will be different. That is the following. We know that normally when a person's life is at stake, they are not only permitted, but they are even commanded to violate most of the Torah. For example, uh, you violate Shabbos if you have to go to the hospital. Uh, You eat on Yom Kippur. Eat treif if necessary. This is the famous principle called pikuach nefesh. Saving a life overrides virtually everything. Virtually everything. And not only are you permitted, but you're commanded. In fact, when I say, in fact, I, I, my language is not exact here. When I say you're allowed to desecrate Shabbos to save a life, the word desecrate is not quite right. Because when you break, even break Shabbos, when you break Shabbos to save a life, you're not desecrating Shabbos at all. You're, you're, you're fulfilling the mitzvahs of Hashem. I remember when I was a rabbi in Rishol, we went, and even if, you know, even if it's a doubt, even if you're not sure, if you're not sure you're supposed to err on the side of pregnancy, we had uh, the elderly parent of one of my congregants fainted during, uh, during uh, davening. And he was an old person. His health was not the best. So I, I, I went in my synagogue. I went uh, to the telephone. I dialed nine one one to get the ambulance there. And I did it without uh, going into a room. I wanted people to see me because one has to understand that this is a mitzvah. So I still remember, you know, a kid walking by. Hey, the rabbi's on the phone on Shabbos. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know but that's an important point. Yeah. What was that called? Pikuach. Yeah, we have our speller on the on the board there. Yeah, pikuach is pay. Thank you. Yeah, pay yud, kuf, vav, ches, ches. The final O. No, ches, a ches, not a chav, a ches. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You got it? Yeah. Yeah, correct. And the next word is nefesh. Nun, fe, shin. Right. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, nefesh. Yeah, okay, yeah. All right, so because of, so we know that saving a life is the most important thing in Judaism. But, but, there are three exceptions. There are three commandments which you must die, you must die before you transgress. Only three commandments. 
and the three commandments, of course each of them have repercussions, is Avodah Zarah, which is idolatry, and I'll explain what that means today. Uh, the second is Giloy Arayos, sexual immorality, and the third is murder. Now, let me illustrate this. This is going to be a very long answer. Back to the sh- I will get back to the shell of suicide, but I need to give you this long digression. If a non-Jew goes over to you and says, bow down to that idol or I'll kill you, you have to be willing to die. Now, it's not likely today someone's going to say, bow down to the idol. That's not going to be the likely thing. But this would be if somebody says, convert to Christianity or I'll kill you even convert to Islam uh, or renounce your Judaism. What about Moranos? Like, what happens if you secretly practice? Okay, so that would mean the following. That would actually mean, this raises an interesting question. The Moranos were halakhically obligated to give their lives. Mm -hmm. However, if one fails to rise to that occasion, they are still Jews in good standing. This was a letter the Rambam wrote hundreds of years before, that God forbid a person who fails to commit, to, uh, to, to be a martyr, mm-hmm. has violated a religious duty, but they are still kosher Jews, and every mitzvah they do is treasured by God. Meaning, there was a view that said, a very extreme view that said, if you externally convert to another religion, you're no longer Jewish, God hates you, your mitzvahs don't count. The Rambam says, absolutely not. But there is a duty to give your life. There is a duty to give your life. But then it sounds like you can kind of be forgiven or have a decent enough life that people will choose not to give their life. Well, it's like anything else, meaning sometimes Hashem requires a supreme sacrifice, and that is an Avera, and after 120 years, you'll have to give an accounting for it but that doesn't cancel out the other good things that you've done. It's like anything else. This is added to your demerits basket, but it doesn't destroy your status as a Jew. Do you remember there was a reporter, he was not religious, uh, Daniel Pearl, uh, this was a while ago, uh, the Wall Street uh, Journal, Uh and uh, ISIS kidnapped him. And uh, they they actually, they uh, videoed his beheading on YouTube, an awful thing. They put a, a knife on his, to his throat and they wanted him to say Muhammad is the only uh, prophet, whatever it is. And he said, I am a Jew. They killed, and they killed him. They killed him right there. Now, this, this is so, so horrendous. But you know, Chazal say a person can get his olam haba, his world to come, in one second. Just one second. Even if the whole life didn't keep uh, the mitzvahs, didn't keep anything, and I don't, I, I can't speak. I'm not speaking to what he kept. I, I have no idea. But even if a person sinned all of his life, in that last moment, he stands up and says, "I am a Jew. I'm not going to reject the Torah." Then that gets him a great, great olam haba. That, that's an atonement for everything. The, the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya that uh, this idea that every Jew has the godly soul that even if it's in a klipa, it's encased, and uh, he doesn't access it, but at moments of great, great stress, it will come out. Mm-hmm. And that is why he says, even a Jew that is very far from the mitzvot and very far from the Torah, and thinks he doesn't even believe in God, thinks that way, will be willing to give his life for Hashem, 
in those extreme moments. Because at some point, it comes out. What's in you comes out. It gets revealed. Again, the, the, the author of writes, writes about this very, very uh, beautifully in the, in the Tanya. Uh, so, that's Avodah You must give your life before you renounce no. your identity as a Jew. By the way, a little aside, how, how does this work with impersonation? Now, think about this. In the Holocaust... Sorry, that's, isn't that Mysterious yeah. Nefesh? What is to do what? To, to give your life. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Instead of Odazara. No, no. I, I meant. You're, in other words, you have to give. You have to be Moser Nefesh gotcha. before you do you a Right. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. No, no, I wasn't saying. I know. Yeah, I was no, like. I wasn't saying that is a right, right. I was saying Avodazara is the cause, right. which is obligates you to be Moser Moser Nefesh. Right. Okay. Uh, by the way, how does this work with impersonation? Think about this. Um, so a Jew must give his life before he converts. That, that's, that's for sure. That we know. But converting wouldn't have helped you in Nazi Germany. If a Jew simply told the Nazi, oh, I'm going to become a Christian, don't kill me. <laughs> that, that wouldn't help. In fact, there were Rachman Jews who converted to Christianity who uh, died in concentration camps. But what Jews could sometimes do is they could get false papers that would actually say that they were born Catholic. Or they could dress like a goy, or they could dress like a priest even. So the interesting question is, if you're in you're in Nazi-occupied Europe, you're in Poland, and you know your life is in danger, but you could pass yourself off as a Gentile, let's say, blonde hair, blue eyes, whatever it is, or you could wear the garments of a Gentile, or whatever. Are you allowed to do that? Or must you give your life before you impersonate being a non-Jew? Now I can tell you right off the bat, historically it's very, very clear that many, many religious Jews, at least for short terms, impersonated being Gentiles. And even some great rabbis, they say, got out of Europe, by, uh, got, got into Switzerland, in other words, by shaving off their beard and giving the impression, at least, that they were non-Jews. The question is, why isn't that the same as renouncing your Judaism in order to save your life? Yeah. What about people who left their children in monasteries? That uh, well, that, that that's actually that's actually quite a big problem. Uh, meaning, uh, I leave my child to be raised as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think their thinking might have been that there would be Jews who would try to reclaim them afterwards, which there which were, not always successfully, but indeed there were attempts to... In fact, there's a famous story that Rabbi Eliezer Silver was a great rabbi in America. Uh, he, would co- he would go to these uh, orphanages in, the, in Europe to reclaim Jewish children. How could he tell? Uh, uh, so, so the Catholics has always said, there are no Jewish children here. So he would just recite... Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, the Shema, and all of the little kids who still remembered before they went to sleep, their father and mother would say Shema, they ran to embrace him. So he was like the Pied Piper that he attracted, I'm sure it didn't work 100% of the time, but, but he actually got children by saying the Shema, and they came to him because they remembered it from their parents' home. Uh, yeah. Were you the one who told us a story on this topic of a rabbi who was leaving some country, like trying to pass a border, and a guard had said to him, 
they were like impersonating someone, like go in this car, and then a guard said, who are you? And he said, I'm this, I'm coming from this place, and the guard was like, I'm not expecting anyone from that place. And then someone calls him right at that second and says, has the person come yet? And he's like, oh, he's right here right now. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, you did tell the story. I, I, don't, I don't think I told you that story, but yeah, so, but I am I'm familiar with stories like that. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but the postkim said, impersonation is different than renunciation. Renunciation is when the guy knows I'm a Jew and I'm saying I no longer want to be a Jew. That I must give up my life. But when I'm impersonating, I'm not really saying I'm rejecting my Judaism. I'm saying I'm somebody else temporarily. So they say that that, that might be a different situation. Yeah. So, so externally, if you tell someone that you want to be a certain religion, yeah. but inside you're still... Yeah, so not good enough. In other words, you're, okay. that's correct. That's a very good point. That, that, that misirat nefesh, the duty of giving up your life, mm-hmm. is even if your conversion is fake. Okay, okay. Even if it's fake. You can't make the argument, I didn't mean it anyway. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what misirat nefesh means. You cannot give the impression that you want to renounce your Judaism. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, but if no one knows that you're Jewish... So if no one knows, that's, 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 that's the distinction. That's called impersonation versus renunciation. Mm. Um, and it's a subtle distinction, but it, it was very, very relevant in the Holocaust. And even today, you know, I know, if, I mean, I'll give you an, a, even a simple example. I, I have a, uh, a friend, he was a student in my yeshiva, and he loves to travel, and he loves to go into dangerous places. <laughs> So he loved to go in the West Bank, he loved to go into Jordan even, he would sneak into different Arab countries. But of course he could not uh, go there as a Jew. So he constantly had represented himself as either a Christian or a Muslim. And in fact, he would tell me stories about how, uh, I, I think he, he, he sometimes had a sense that the Arabs knew, knew that he was Jewish. Like the Arab would say, you know, if I had a Jew in front of me now, you know, they're, e- they're eating something together. He says, I would take this knife and, you know, disembowel him. Don't you agree? You know, looking at him, you know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, that's well, that, crazy. It was kind of those things where he had a sense. That the guy, you know. In that situation. So, right? again, obviously he wasn't saying he's a Jew that's converting to Islam. He was, he was uh, misrepresenting his identity. That's a little different. Okay. Uh, second situation where you have to give up your life is sexual immorality. But here, uh, since this is a women's class, I need to qualify it a little bit because it's, it's interesting. Uh, sexual immorality does include things like a rape and includes adultery, incest, and the like. But there's an important principle that uh, many, many commentaries paskin, and they say the obligation to give your life is only if you are called the active violator. And that's defined as the man versus the woman, meaning to say, if a woman, God forbid, should never happen, is attacked, and she is simply passively being violated, she does not have to give up her life. In other words, if a, man, if a guy would say to a man, rape this woman or I'll kill you, the man would have to say no and get shot. But a woman does not have to resist unto death based on the idea that in this type of tragic situation she is treated as uh, the passive victim and passive victimhood does not require Mesiwet Nefesh. 
Again, I'm not giving you any psak halacha, and hopefully it should never, ever, ever, ever be any indication for a psak halacha. But there is an important distinction here between what are called active violations and passive violations. And one of the proofs is from Queen Esther, because Queen Esther had relations with Achashverosh many, many times. And how could she do so? Shouldn't she have resisted until death? And one of the answers of the Talmud is that the woman is treated as uh, passive and there is no obligation of Mesirat Nefesh. And then we go backwards. If there's no obligation of Mesirat Nefesh, we then apply Pikuach Nefesh, right? Pikuach Nefesh and Mesirat Nefesh are opposite terms. Pikuach Nefesh is saving of a life. Mesirat Nefesh is giving up your life. So once we knock out Mesirat Nefesh, we're back to Pikuach Nefesh. Okay. The third category is murder. Now, the simple case is this. The guy, could be a Jew too, but typically we talk about the non-Jewish oppressor, goes over to me and says, kill that innocent person or I'll kill you. Now, you're allowed to kill the guy that's threatening you. That is mutter. He's called a rodef, a pursuer. But you cannot kill an innocent person in order to save your life. Because the Gemara says, who says your blood is any redder? Right? You can violate Shabbos to save a life because your life is more important than Shabbos. That's what God says. So God says, God himself says, your life is more important than Shabbos, your life is more important than kosher, your life is more important than Yom Kippur. Maybe I wouldn't have thought that, but that's what God says. No matter who you are, your life is more important. But how can you say your life is more important than his life? You can kill him to save you? Who says? What's your calculus? Well, what if you feel, well, yeah. <laughs> what if you say, my life is more important than his life. You know, I'm a person who does this and that and that, and he's a bum. Well, even so, even so, even if you are the greatest tzaddik in the world and that guy is the greatest Russian in the world and the world might, you, you would think, the world might be better off without him, you cannot make the judgment. You cannot kill one person to save your person. The only person you could kill is the one that's threatening you because he is a rodef. Yeah. Yeah. One is if the person that they want you to kill isn't an innocent person, they're like a serial killer, like a really, really definitively a horrific person. Yes. No, no, excellent question. So, so the, yeah, yeah. So the Rambam, the Rambam actually says the Rambam does qualify what I said a little bit. The Rambam says that if the non-Jew, you know, the oppressor, the ones that's threatening you specifies a particular person. doesn't just say, kill some Jew. And that person is guilty of crimes for which his life should be forfeited. You are allowed to kill him to save other people. So, there, so in the case of the serial murder, that would be exactly the case. Now, it gets a little more complicated when he's not guilty of that type of crime. Uh, but they're asking for a specific person. Uh, the Rambam says you would not be allowed to kill him under those circumstances. And then my second question was if does it still apply if the person they want you to kill isn't Jewish? Or uh, 
That's a tricky question. That, 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 there are some opinions that say the following, and again, uh, this is not going to be politically correct. L- let me make it very clear. You are, under normal circumstances, the prohibition against murder in the Ten Commandments absolutely applies to a non-Jew. You are not allowed to kill a non-Jew. That is 100% clear. Killing a non-Jew is a violation of the Ten Commandments. No, no, no question. However, there are some opinions that say that a Jew, in order to save a Jewish life, is permitted to kill a non-Jew. There is, there is such an opinion based on that. But that, that's not the majority opinion anyway, but there is, there is indeed such a view. Yeah. In the like, train track problem, yep. would that apply? Uh, so let's, think, let's, let's fool around a little bit with trolley problems. These are, these are called, this is a whole branch of, of moral philosophy. Uh, the uh, one who started this whole thing, uh, I may have told you this, I don't remember, was a woman, Philippa Foote. She was a F-O-O-T-E. Uh, she was a British philosopher, professor at Cambridge University. Uh, her history is a little interesting. She was the daughter of U.S. President Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland is a very famous president, only for one thing only. <laughs> he didn't do anything, but he is the only president of the United States who served two non-consecutive terms. He was the 22nd president and the 24th president. There was somebody else in between. He's the only one that ever did that. So be it as it may, uh, Dr. Foote decided she married an Englishman, and she moved to England and became a very distinguished professor of philosophy. And she developed a whole series of problems uh, around trolleys, uh, which are called trolley problems. And Halacha talks a lot about these problems. Uh, so the trolley, so tr- I'll give you a few trolley cases, and we'll analyze what Halacha would say about them. Case number one, you know, you're driving a trolley, right? You're driving a train, and uh, the brakes fail. The brakes fail, and uh, if you can't stop it, and uh, if you keep on going in the direction that you're going, you're going to run over five children who can't get out of the way. But you have a side track. You can't stop the train, but you can move the train. But on that side track, there is a drunken worker who fell asleep, and he's sleeping across the track. Not a very smart thing to do. So basically, are you allowed to turn the train away from the five in order to save the one? Oh, I'm sorry, the other way around. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry, the other way. Are you allowed to turn the, the, the train away from the five if you're going to kill the one? Now, if you have what's called utilitarian ethics, utilitarian ethics, right? Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, that you try to make decisions that are the most good for the most people, you'll play a numbers game. Hey, it's better to save five people than to save one person. It's better to save younger people that have many more years of life than maybe an old guy that's going to die pretty soon anyway. So utilitarian ethics, if you would ask, ask Jeremy Bentham, he would say, turn the train away from the children, and if you run over that guy, you know, too bad. Now that's his problem. He shouldn't have fallen asleep on the track. However, Halacha says the following. The same way you can't say that one life is better than another life, you can't even say five lives are better than another life. Meaning to say... You, you, you cannot judge, you cannot say that one life 
is inferior to five. The reason, once again, is it goes back to infinity. All lives are infinite value. Infinity is not changed by numbers. So therefore, halacha basically says you gotta you gotta keep going. Say again. Some infinities are greater than other infinities. Well, and in uh, in non well, yeah. Mathematically. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But that's uh, that's uh, in maybe non non Euclidean systems. And yeah, there are there are systems that that do that. But the the old traditional mathematics uh, actually looked at all infinities as as the same. But be it as it may, whether you want to use infinity or not. Uh, halakha basically says you cannot uh, make a numbers calculus. So that's the case of the of the trolley uh, situation. Now, let me differentiate this with the following situation. Consider this. Uh, many of you were, were not born with... Uh, oh, yeah, you probably were 9-11, right? You remember 9-11? Yeah, you were, don't remember you were in your, uh, your cribs or whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> but 9-11 was a bad, bad day. September... Uh, 11th, uh, 2001. And uh, imagine this scenario. You have a plane, an airplane, that has terrorists on it and 200 passengers who are not terrorists. And the plane is headed towards the World Trade Center or the plane is headed towards the Pentagon. And the estimation is such that if it hits, you know, you never know for sure until it happens, 5,000 people are going to die. But we can shoot down the plane. And if we shoot down the plane, we're going to kill everybody on the plane. But 5,000 people are going to live. Now, if the only people on the plane would be terrorists, that's absolutely no, that's, that's simple. That's no question whatsoever. We can kill the terrorists to save other people. That is the law that's called Rodef. Rodef. Pursue, right? That's not my question. But my question is, that on the plane are innocent people. Now, I just told you, you can't kill one guy to save five children. Right? That's trolley case number one. So the question is, can I kill 200 people to save 5,000? Right? The question is, is that the same as the trolley situation, or is there a difference? Yeah. Well, isn't it different because they're probably they're going to die either way? Yes, that's the critical variation. That's the critical point that you need to understand uh, mm-hmm. in analyzing these matters. In the case of the trolley case, if I don't turn the train, that guy on the tracks is not going to die. So what I'm doing is I'm making a decision to kill him to save five kids or a hundred kids or even a thousand kids. I can't make that decision. I cannot kill this guy even to save 100 people because that guy's innocent, even though he shouldn't have been sleeping on the tracks. But in the case of the 9-11 suicide plane, it's not that I'm killing someone who wouldn't die in order to save a large number. They would die either way. So instead of... so, So the choice I'm making is... Should 200 plus 5,000 die? Or only 200 die? The answer is 200 would be good. Uh, 200 would, would be a better decision. So there would be halakhic justification for shooting down the plane. But even here, you have to pay attention. Because when you shoot down a plane, there might be people on the ground who might die, right? The plane might fall on a house. Now that would be like a trolley case, right? For me to kill those people on the ground in order to save a larger number, 
that might be much more of a problem, you see? But if the only people that are going to die are the people who would die anyway, uh, Rashi says, this is Rashi, actually, the Rambam implies you're not allowed to shoot down the plane because you can't be a murderer. Just participating in murder is something immoral. Uh, but Rashi seems to suggest where they're going to die anyway, it would be permitted. Yeah? Can you speak about what the Torah thinks of capital punishment? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll address it. Uh, maybe it maybe deserves a longer talk, but I'll address it uh, in, a, in a short way. Obviously, when you read the Torah, the Torah is filled with many sins that have capital punishment. Interestingly enough, some of the sins that you might think are capital punishment are not. Rape of a single woman, by the way, is not a capital crime in the Torah. That, that, that's very interesting. Uh, we'll talk about that. But desecration of the Shabbos is a capital crime. Uh, adultery is a capital crime. Murder is a capital crime. Idolatry is a capital crime. Incest, voluntary incest, I don't mean rape or anything, but voluntary incest is a capital crime. Uh, the practice of male homosexuality, male homosexual sex, is a capital crime. And bestiality is a capital crime. A lot of capital crimes. Uh, so you get the impression everybody's always getting executed for different types of sins. And yet, the Mishnah says, a Sanhedrin that would kill somebody, even every 70 years, was called a bloody, violent Sanhedrin. Because you have to understand that the evidentiary rules for capital punishment were so strict that they were never met. They were virtually never met. Number one, you had to have eyewitnesses, no circumstantial evidence. There have to be two witnesses. And the witnesses have to be kosher witnesses. That means they have to be religious Jews and men and all those things. That's not so likely you're going to have. Number two, the witnesses have to warn the person before he does the action, don't do this. They have to say, don't do this or you'll get the death penalty. Number three, he has to acknowledge by saying, I heard you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Why would he acknowledge it? Number four, the witnesses are cross-examined separately. And if there's the smallest discrepancy in their story, the testimony is thrown out. So, for example, they would ask the witnesses, uh, what color socks was the victim or the murderer wearing? And if one said gray and the other said blue, they would throw it out. In other words, they made it almost impossible to convict. So I think the way you have to understand it is capital punishment <coughs> is very much in the books but it was not meant to be a punishment that would, would actually be applied. It was more like a warning or a pedagogical element of how severe certain Averas were, but it was not meant to be carried out in, in practice. But what would we say about modern courts like in America, for example? So here it gets a little more complicated because remember that when you're not operating in a Jewish court system, then you have to operate under the seven commandments of Noah. See, this is, in other words, this is Jewish law for non-Jews is a different system. Right? The Torah's mission for non-Jews is a different mission than the Torah's mission for Jews. Right? Jews have the Torah. Non-Jews are given the seven Noahide laws, uh, which 
overlap with the Ten Commandments, but they're not not completely the the same. And you know, one of the Rebbe's missions, Mifzayim, was uh, to teach the uh, Noahide laws, not to convert, not to proselytize, not to make non-Jews Jewish, but to teach them about the seven Noahide laws. So there, it's an interesting point. The Noahide laws for murder and adultery actually are capital. The, the halacha does encourage capital punishment, but uh, some opinions say that that is only a mandatory sentence, but it's not a, I'm sorry, that's only a maximum sentence, but not a mandatory sentence, meaning the Torah allows non-Jewish societies to impose capital punishment, but it might discourage them from doing so. So I do know a very, 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 very prominent rabbi, he's not alive anymore, great Talmud Chacham, who testified when, when the state of Illinois wanted to adopt capital punishment for different things, he testified as a rabbi that Judaism would not be in favor of capital punishment. Now, people asked him, how can you say that? Number one, the Torah has capital punishment. And number two, the Noahide Code has capital punishment. But his argument was that when you have a judicial system that is unfair and discriminates on the basis of race or poverty, it is not a fair system. When it's not a fair system, the Torah does not want capital punishment to be imposed because there's too much risk of erroneous and unfair decisions. So should a Jew not take a job as a one who um, carries out capital punishment? Uh, it's, you know, uh, one might say that. Again, I, there, there are different ways of looking at it, meaning you might take the position that since under the Noahide laws, capital punishment is legitimate, I as a Jew am assisting Gentile society in carrying out their obligations under the Noahide laws, and therefore that is a legitimate function. That's one position. The other position would be that the Noahide laws theoretically would apply, to be sure, but when you have corruption in the system, uh, you don't apply those laws until and unless all of that corruption is eradicated, which it has not been, and if that would be the case, you shouldn't. So this is something the executioner would have to talk to his rabbi about, how you view the, you view the legal system. There are two different ways of do, do, doing it, and it really depends on how convinced you are that the judicial system in capital punishment cases is unfair. And that's a complicated question. It's not such an easy question, meaning we're not against capital punishment per se, but we're against it when it's applied in unfair situations. Now you may know there's a whole project called the Innocence Project where a lot of people on death row have been uh, taken off death row. In fact, they've, they've, gotten, they've gone free because DNA evidence has shown that they were not, uh, they were not uh, guilty and they, they literally didn't even commit the crime. They were on death row for, for 20 years sometimes. So there is a lot of corruption in the system, a lot of mistakes in the system. So this would be the argument why, even though in theory capital punishment is there, it's on the books, but it's not meant to be applied in those circumstances. Uh, yeah? If a Jew was on a jury for a case where they decided to pursue the death penalty, would they have to resign themselves? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. This would depend on exactly the same type of situation. Now, that's a very hard question for an individual juror who's not an expert 
to be able to answer. But that would be the question. Meaning, this goes, you understand that I'm, I'm giving you two extreme answers. According to one view, it would actually be a mitzvah to participate in the administration of a death penalty because that is a fulfillment of the Noahide obligation to administer justice in accordance with the Noahide laws. According to the other view, it would be a sin and you would be an accessory to murder uh, because oh, it's an unjust system. So this is a situation where you literally have two opposite answers. Is not okay. doing a mitzvah the same as sin? Uh, well, well, yeah, this is different. I'm saying it's a sin because you are participating in sending somebody to the no, death. No, I know, but like, is it worse to like abstain from a mitzvah oh, than, no. or I mean, is it worse to sin than to abstain from a mitzvah? Yeah, or yeah, is, yeah. That, that's there... a good question. But but generally speaking, generally speaking, it is less sinful to abstain than it is to commit. Mm-hmm. Meaning, if you're not sure if if I'm doing a sin or I'm not doing a sin, then even if abstaining would be a sin, it, it's less severe than doing something. Sins of commission are, are worse than sins of omission. That's always the case. Uh, an example is, the Gemara says, I'll give you a quickie example. Uh, the Gemara says that if I didn't read the Shema, so I committed a sin by omission, I do tshuva and God forgives me totally. But if I ate a ham sandwich, I need tshuva and Yom Kippur, meaning I need two things mm-hmm. because that's a sin of commission and that's worse than a sin of omission. Again, if you learn Tanya, and I don't know if you get this far, but if you get to the third part, Igeret Tachuva, so you'll see the Alter Rebbe brings uh, that passage to the different levels of, of Averos and the different ways of tshuva that, that you, need, you need for it. Okay, so the suicide, so again, it's very important that you see the difference between the trolley situation and the suicide airplane situation. But I want to point out that even the suicide airplane, Maimonides is actually strict. Maimonides does not allow you to shoot down the airplane because you're still murdering. Rashi does permit it where the death is going to be inevitable uh, either either way. Okay, so this is kind of a long segue, but now I'm going to get back. <laughs> you probably have forgotten. Uh, well, the question we were addressing is Shaul HaMelech suicide. So here's the question. Let's imagine you're in the Middle Ages, you're in York, England, and your, your city is surrounded by a mob of raging, raging Christians at the time of the Crusades. And they basically say, convert to Christianity or we will kill you. Halach is very clear, you'd have to give your life, right? That, that, that we know. But what if you're afraid of the following? If I say no, they're going to torture me. And in the, they're not just going to kill me. Killing is killing. Killing is, you know, it's hard, it's not easy, but it'll be a second. But instead of killing, they're going to torture you, God forbid. And you are afraid that the torture is going to be so awful that you're going to break down and convert just to get out of the torture. So here is the, the question, Lahalacha. If you have to give up your life before you convert, if you are afraid that torture will cause you to convert, are you allowed to take your life? Meaning, if you have to give your life, give your life meaning you're letting them kill you, 
can you take your life instead if you're afraid that otherwise you're going to break down? Now, there is a difference between letting somebody kill you and killing yourself. And yet, some opinions took the position in the Middle Ages that if a person is afraid that because of torture they're going to do the prohibited thing, they are allowed to commit suicide in order to avoid the transgression of the big three, Avodah Zorah, Gili Arayas, uh, now, the example in the case of the Crusades was Avodah Zarah, but I'll give you an example in murder. Let's say you're a soldier. This is a tough situation. And you, you are in possession of information of national security. You know the whereabouts of people, etc. And the enemy wants you to reveal that information. And they will torture you until you reveal it. And you are afraid, you are afraid that in the course of torture, and again, I mean, we don't even want to think about what torture could be. There's sleep deprivation, food deprivation, electric shock, there's mutilation. You're afraid you're going to break down. Are you allowed to kill yourself. Now, by the way, I'm not sure if they've done this done this yet. I believe now, I'm not sure, I don't want to say for sure they're doing it, but they certainly were thinking about it. The Israeli, uh, the IDF, wanted to give soldiers like cyanide pills so that, if, no, cyanide, you just, that's how the Nazis You're supposed suicide. to kill yourself before yeah. getting captured. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the, the issue. Policy. That, that's the issue of killing yourself. Mm-hmm either before you get captured or right after you get captured, whatever it is. And part of it was, so you will not reveal the whereabouts of people because of torture. So, this is exactly, analytically, this is the same issue as killing yourself in order to avoid a forced conversion to Christianity. In other words, the is, the problem is this. When it's a mitzvah for which you must be willing to die... If you are afraid you will violate it, either by a forced conversion or by giving away the whereabouts of people who will die because of your decision, so some say suicide is a permissible option. And that is why we find historically that Jewish communities sometimes did commit suicide when faced with conversions. Now what's a little problematical, I think more than a little, is it wasn't just suicide that they permitted, they even permitted murder, because in some of these communities, what happened was, it wasn't simply people killed themselves in order not to be forcibly converted, they killed their children. That, in truth, if truth be told, it is very, very difficult to figure out what the halachic permissibility of that is. But at least the suicide would be it. So, yeah, yeah. Um, in cases where suicide is allowed, does it change at all for pregnant women who, by killing herself, is also killing her fetus? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. But I think the halakha is like this: that we regard uh, fetuses as potential life that's deserving of protection, but we do not regard them as actual separate lives. So, as a result, it would not uh, change. We would not treat. Um, the fetus as kind of a murder. We would treat it as a 
suicide, an enhanced suicide, if that's the right, the right term. Okay, so now with all of these confusing ideas in place, let's go back to Shaul. One of the explanations of Shaul was the following. Shaul was afraid that he would be captured by the Philistines alive and he would be tortured and humiliated and as a final demonstration of how much they control him would be tortured into acknowledging the superiority of their gods and their idols. So consequently, Shaul was in a situation analogous to the Jewish community of York in which if they would be tortured into Avodah they could take their lives if they feel the torture would break them. In other words, to put it another way, Shaul's suicide could be seen as an example of religious martyrdom, Mesiras Nefesh, not to be Oved, the Avodah Zara, that he thought might be a probable consequence of his capture. Right, that, that's one interpretation of the Shaul, but again, this is assuming you'll be allowed to take your life for that reason. There is another possibility as well. Let's go back to the Shimshon, right? The Shim, we, we analyzed the Shimshon story, that Shimshon was taking his life to save the lives of other Jews by killing the enemy. So maybe in Shaul's case it was a similar issue, but it's much more attenuated. Shaul was, not, Shaul was not in a position to kill anybody, but Shaul was afraid that if he would be taken alive and he would be paraded by the enemy, this would have a debilitating effect on the combat, moral, the, the, the combat uh, courage, so to speak, of the Jewish army. How does, a Jew, how, does, how does any army feel when it sees its leader being paraded? And ultimately, that would so undermine combat morale, you see, that Shaul felt taking his life would save the lives of others by increasing combat morale. So the two ways of... So, so, so I gave you three answers for Shaul here. Answer number one is, it was non-halachic, and he acted out of depression and despair and despondency. Not responsible for his action, but his action was not halakhically right. Answer number two, Shaul's behavior was an expression of religious martyrdom because he was afraid he would be tortured into idolatry. Answer number three, Shaul took his life in order not to deplete the morale of his army by having him paraded alive. And therefore, he did it in order to save the lives of others. But that's much more speculative. Shimshon is a much clearer case. Shimshon is killing the enemies. Shaul is avoiding an undermining of combat morale. It's a little tricky, but perhaps that would be it as well. Yeah. So are there no cases of suicide in the Torah? Uh, there are. There are no cases of suicide in the Torah. Mm-hmm. Now we do have in the in the prophets we do have some other suicides, but most of them are considered rishayim. For example, 
Uh, we find in Doeg and Achitofel, these were people who rebelled against David and sided with Absalom and they committed suicide. But uh, those, those are generally identified as bad people, Rishayim, and therefore what they did does not, uh, you know, does not really raise a question. Now, let's think about Masada for a moment. Well, what's the story with Masada? Masada is, of course, post-biblical. Masada is around the time of the Second Temple's destruction. This is 70, you know, the, the, the Jewish people are fighting a major war with the Roman Empire. And uh, you had a bunch of uh, zealots who were, uh, who were trapped. And uh, they were a very, very, very good army, but they had no way of getting out of this alive. Or at least no way of getting out of it free. They could be taken as slaves. They could be abused. Different things could happen. They could be tortured. Uh, they could be uh, killed. But what they did was, was it 900 people? They, they took their lives. They took their own lives. And their children. And the children, rather than being taken by the enemy. Huh? I, I understand they chose who would do it and, and the order, but but still, uh, you know, how do you understand? So so really, the truth of the matter is, we, we we cannot say that we know for sure what the motivations were. I mean, if the motivations were they would be sexually abused, then maybe it's similar to the idolatry and the like, where they could take their lives to prevent that avera. But if it was a political statement. Like you, you Romans are not going to get us. No, we will die before we get to you. There used to be a saying. People used to say, uh, "Better dead than red." During the Cold War, you know, better dead than red. Well, we actually say, in some ways, better red than dead. Meaning, we take the position that even if you're going to live under oppression, as long as you can keep the Torah, that, that's important. Uh, it's better to live under oppression and have life than to take away life. So we would not be supportive of the idea of taking your life in order to avoid political subjugation. So to the extent that Masada is understood as a political declaration that we will die before we surrender, Halakha would not be in favor of it. If, on the other hand, there was a fear of sexual abuse, a uh, well, fear of, a fear of death alone doesn't doesn't well, lie. A fear of torture. Were Romans capturing them and selling them into so, Well, that that might be. And then that might, that might be. But then they would be a passive victim, right? So and you're. They would be obligated to Jewish. That's a good. That's a good. That, that's a very good point. Uh, yeah. Okay. It may, may depend if it's male versus female, passive versus active. Because you're right. If a passive victim doesn't have to give their life, they're not allowed to take their life. But you see, it's all connected here. If you don't have to die, then you're not allowed to kill yourself. So it, it's tricky. I mean, I think the one thing we know is Masada did not have rabbinic supervision, so to speak. So there was no halachic authority that gave them the the green the green light. Uh, so most regard the Masada suicide as uh, an extreme situation that was not halachically legitimate in in that in that way. Okay. They murdered their families. Uh, they for sure murdered their families. Well, yeah. yeah then, then you have that. Say, then it's even worse. Then it's even worse. Then it's even worse because, as I mentioned, even during the Crusades, it's not clear what the halachic basis would be to murder your children, even if you're allowed to take your own uh, your own life. So these are tricky. There is uh, yet another interpretation of this. I, I will leave it for um, afterwards because we're going to talk about treatment of uh, terminally ill people. What do you have to do? Right? We're moving from suicide 
to a related question, but it's not the same question, and that is, when someone is ill, how aggressive must we be in treating them? Meaning, do we have to give chemotherapy to everybody? Do we have to do dialysis? Do we have to do CPR, chest compression? Uh, Do we do surgeries, ventilators, respirators? Now, it's connected to suicide in the sense that when you're not treating somebody, you're letting them die. But there is a fundamental distinction between letting a person die and killing them. And uh, therefore, we're going to have to see, uh, and unfortunately, this is very, very relevant to halacha, uh, how aggressive does halacha say you have to be in keeping people alive. Today, we can keep... uh, DNRs, right. Today, we can keep people alive in all sorts of conditions. And DNRs are do not resuscitate... uh, Well, that's the question, right. Do not resuscitate DNRs. DNIs do not intubate... And all sorts of things, all sorts of abbreviations. It's an alphabet soup. And then we have advanced directives, living wills, durable powers of attorney, all of these different things, which are very, very, very important, both in the United States and in Israel, really any, any, really any civilized country. So uh, we're going to be talking about that. Right? So it's not suicide directly, but it's what you might call passively deciding to discontinue certain processes. Okay, have a wonderful Hanukkah, and I guess we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we are.